All right, good morning, everybody. We are in week two of this Christmas series entitled, What Child Is This? And in one sense, this, this, the series title is just the, the lyrics from a song, What Child Is This? We sing that song every year. But in, a, in another sense, as we mentioned last week, this is like the question. What child is this? Is the question. It's similar to when Jesus in the gospel accounts asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Because how you answer that question determines everything, like about what you believe about yourself, the world, what's, what's going to happen in the future, like everything depends on how you answer that question, what child is this? Now, every single week, we, we're looking at that question from a different angle. And so last week, we said the child <clears throat> that was born in that manger 2,000 years ago was the great good shepherd of the people of God. And what we want to do today is answer what child is this, but from a slightly different angle. And we're going to begin by letting Jesus introduce this slightly different angle. Mark chapter 10, verse 42 says this, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And here's the key. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus picks up this idea of servanthood. And he says, even I, I'm coming to be a servant. But that word servant is not just like a random word that, that came to us floating out of nowhere. The servant or being a servant of the Lord, a servant of a God, servant of God, has a long, rich tradition throughout the Hebrew scriptures. So if you look back in the Old Testament, you'll see that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, are all called servants of the Lord, servants of Yahweh. Moses is the servant of the Lord. David is a servant of the Lord. God says of David, you are my servant. Elijah is called a servant of the Lord. So there's this rich tradition of those people who have been called by God to serve him. There's another servant, though, that's presented to us in the book of Isaiah, particularly the second half of the book of Isaiah. And this is a mysterious servant figure. And the reason why it's so mysterious is in the second half of Isaiah, there's discussion about a servant. And as the servant is described, and we hear about his his identity, his role, his vocation, the task that God is giving him, those things almost seem to be in tension with one another. You might even say that some of them appear to be in contradiction with each other. And so when you're reading through it, it's very confusing. It's difficult to follow. Like, wait, who is this mysterious servant and what are they gonna do? Because over here they're doing this and here they're doing this and it seems like there's tension and contradiction and paradox, like all built into the job description of the servants. What I'd like to do today is like look at this presentation from Isaiah on this mysterious servant figure and hopefully kind of gather all the puzzle pieces and then take a step back and see if we could form the coherent whole picture. Now, um, I'll warn you, it, it, it's, it's kind of hard to follow. Isaiah is a, is a deep book of prophecy and it's mo a lot of it is written in poetry it's written roughly 700 years before the time of Jesus. So this is Isaiah's introduction to this mysterious servant figure. And when he introduces it, it's actually not confusing at all. It's pretty straightforward and simple. Isaiah 41, 8 through 9. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, 
You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Okay, pretty straightforward. Who is the servant according to Isaiah? Israel. It's like crystal clear at this point. You are my servant, Israel. So when we speak of Israel, we're talking about, we're in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. This is the corporate people of God. This is corporate ethnic Israel in the time of the Old Testament. So Israel is the servant of God. Well, if they're the servant, you have to ask the question, what's their task? What's their mission? What's their vocation? Because the other servants of God, think Moses, think David, they all had certain roles and tasks to play. So what is the mission of the mysterious servant figure who at first glance isn't that mysterious, it's just Israel? I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Okay, so what's, what, what is Israel the servant supposed to do? They are to be a light to the nations. In other words, the Gentiles. Israel is a, is a tiny people group. And so the nations or the Gentiles refers to 99% of the rest of the world. The servant Israel is commissioned with the task of being a light to the nations. And then it's described and expounded upon like this. You are going to open the eyes of the blind. You are going to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. The servant Israel will be a light in darkness. They will bring freedom to the dungeons. They will be a light to the Gentiles. Now, roughly 700 years before the time of Jesus, you might ask the question, well, how was Israel doing at their job? Like, well, it was, were they fulfilling their job description? <clears throat> and Isaiah is going to inform us that's a, that's, that it's actually bad news. Israel is not doing a good job at being a light to the Gentiles at this point. In fact, they're not only not a light, they are in sin and rebellion themselves. So the nation that was going to turn the nations to the Lord is in rebellion to the Lord themselves. He says it like this. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as the servant of the Lord? So there's, there's power here. Israel was going to do what? They were going to bring sight to the blind. And now Isaiah is saying, you're in sin, you're in rebellion to such a degree that you are blind. How will the blind lead the blind? So Israel's in rebellion. And so a theme in the book of Isaiah is that God is holy, righteous, and just, and he won't let wickedness go on forever. He brings judgment. He brings justice. So Israel is now in rebellion. So the expectation is that, well, justice and judgment has to come upon Israel. And Isaiah talks about that. But in addition to that, he also says things like this. I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So the holy, righteous God that brings justice is also saying of his servant Israel, I will forgive you of your sins. I will blot out your transgressions which is really good news, but it still leaves us with the problem. Even though Israel, the servant, is forgiven, they are still not fulfilling their task, their mission, namely to be a light to the Gentiles. 
So what is God going to do about that? He says this, but Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. God is going to forgive Israel. He'll bring salvation to Israel. However, he also says this, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue swear allegiance. God says, there's no one else. I'm it. I am the only God. I am the only one that can save. And I will not only save my people, I won't leave them in their sin and rebellion forever, but also look to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth will hear of me. And make no mistake about it, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation from the ends of the earth will come and bow the knee to the God of Israel, and every tongue will swear allegiance to the God of Israel. Now, again, that's good news, but there's already like a tiny bit of tension because, okay, good news, Israel can be forgiven, uh, even Gentiles can be saved, but that was Israel's job. God is stepping in and saying, well, I'm going to do that. Previously, he said, no, Israel, you're going to do that. She's like, okay, well, how, how, how does this work itself out? Gets, this is where it starts to get really confusing. Isaiah 49, listen to this. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people from afar. Okay, now when you hear someone talk like that in the Bible, who is usually talking? Like, listen to me, you, you coastlands. Who you, I mean, usually it's going to be God. Like human beings don't usually like all the oceans of the world listen to my voice. People don't talk. If you talk like that, you probably got some issues. You know what I mean? Um, So you're expecting this to be God. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in the quiver, he hid me away. So now all of a sudden, we get this figure who appears to be an individual who's been hidden. Like there's this person who's been kept secret and he's an individual, it's like he's in the womb. So, so who is talking here? Then it's, it ends with this, last two lines. And he, God said to me, you are my servant. Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now, this is confusing because there was a servant who failed in its mission and then all of a sudden you get introduced to this other figure who's been kind of kept secret. And just as you start to think that maybe there's another servant or this individual is a servant, Isaiah clarifies, oh, no, no, we're still talking about Israel. Israel, you're my servant. And in Israel, I will be glorified. So there's this idea that Israel still, in some sense, needs to perform the task of being a light to the Gentiles. And so maybe this sort of individual language is poetic personification of ethnic Israel. So yeah, we're talking about a child in a womb, but really this is just poetic language, this personification to describe ethnic Israel as a whole. Okay, keeps going though. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him 
and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. All right, really easy to miss. Again, this is like prophetic language. It's poetic language, and sometimes it's easy just to skip over, but this was strange. What just happened? Okay, let's review some of the details. Who is the servant? Israel. Israel is the servant. We got a hint that maybe there's also an individual who's a servant, but then that was immediately clarified, and it said, no, this is still Israel, and in Israel, God will be glorified. But then it goes on back to the kind of individual language, back to the womb and this servant, and then it says the servant who's in the womb is going to bring Israel back to God. So there is a servant who is going to bring the servant back to the Lord. Do you follow this? If you don't follow that, that's fine because it's, it's kind of not supposed to follow it. It's kind of like, what? No, like review the logic. God has chosen Israel, the, the nation of Israel, this, this, the, the seed and offspring of Abraham to be a light to the Gentiles. However, they've sinned and rebelled too and God said he's going to forgive them. And now he starts talking about a servant in the womb who is going to be a servant that leads the original servant, Israel, back to God. It's strange. Now, do you remember, though, Israel, the servant, had a task. They are to be the light to the Gentiles. Next, Isaiah says, it's not just a thing that you're going to be my servant and you're going to raise up the tribes of Jacob. In other words, you're not just going to, it's too small of a thing for you just to restore the servant, servant, and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God, servant is Israel. Servant is going to be light to the Gentiles. Uh, they join the rebellion against God. God is going to forgive them. He's going to forgive them. And how is he going to forgive them? Somehow, a servant, an additional servant, who is also in some sense a part of the original servant is going to lead them back to the one true God. So it's, it's, it's like you have the servant, which is Israel, and then there's, there's an individual who's, who's a part of the larger whole Israel, but is going to be an individual Israelite who will do the task that the original Israel was supposed to do. And when that occurs, there's gonna be forgiveness of sins. And finally, a light to the Gentiles will shine. Now, when you're reading this in the book of Isaiah, it's, it's very difficult. You're kind of going, is, it an, is the servant an individual? Is it Israel as a whole? Who's, God also said he was going to be the one that saves the Gentiles. And now it says the servant is going to. So like, who exactly is the servant? What role is God going to play in this? And what happens with the original servant? So all of these things are going on, but you're left with this idea that there is an individual Israelite, a part of the larger group of the servant, who is going to bring about forgiveness and be a light to the Gentiles. Another question that flows out of that then is like, how does that happen? What are the mechanics of that? Isaiah goes on. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. This is worship-like language. This is king-like language, which makes sense because if there's this faithful Israelite who's going to be the servant of the Lord, then obviously he's going to be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. 
What's even more confusing, if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, you know that at the beginning of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has a vision where he encounters the God of Israel, the Lord himself, seated on his throne. And the scriptures say that as he beholds Yahweh, the God of Israel, God is highly exalted and lifted up. And now that same language is applied to the servant. Super confusing. It goes on. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. This servant is going to sprinkle the nations. Now, this idea of sprinkling uh, the image of water is atonement language. It's cleansing language. It's like the cleaning of sin type of language which all makes sense so far, but did you catch the weird thing in the dead center? The servant who is highly exalted and lifted up, the faithful Israelite, the true servant, is also simultaneously so marred that he's no longer recognizable. He's beyond human semblance. And his, his form is beyond that of the children of mankind. In other words, when you see him, he is so disfigured he, he doesn't have the appearance of humanity anymore. You could not recognize him. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, the servant, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. So the servant who is exalted and lifted up is now clearly being presented as an individual. Whatever confusion there was, like, is the servant Israel, like ethnic Israel as a whole, as a group, or is the servant one member of the whole? Now it's becoming clear. There is one Israelite who will be the servant who is taken from the servant people. Now, there's more to this though, because even though he's exalted and lifted up, he's despised and rejected. He is a man of sorrows. He's an individual. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. And when people see him, they hide their faces. Maybe it's because he's so marred beyond any human semblance, you just have to turn your face away. So this person is so rejected that people won't even want to look at him. He's despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So he's carrying the sorrows of the people, but when they see him and they see him stricken, they just assume he's smitten by God. In other words, as they see him in this state, they go, clearly this man is being judged by God. Clearly he's a wicked man being judged by God. Goes on. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So what's, what's the mechanism by which forgiveness is being brought about? Remember, somehow the servant is going to restore the people of God. What is the means and mechanism by which this forgiveness is given? 
The key word here is substitution. The servant is going to take our transgressions, our iniquities, our chastisement. He will put it on himself. He will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. Upon him is the chastisement that we deserve, but we get his peace. There's a substitution. He gets what the rebellious people, namely us, deserve, and we get what he ought to have. The mechanism by which God will forgive his people is that of substitution. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So it's like the image of sheep. We're all sheep. We've run away. We're, We're rebellious sheep. But there's one lamb, a spotless lamb, who will become the ultimate sacrificial lamb. All of us are blemish lambs. We have iniquity upon us all, but there is one who will become the ultimate sacrificial lamb, and he will be pierced. He will be crushed. He will be smitten. Now keep in mind, all of this language we're talking about, this servant, is written roughly 700 years before the time of Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who consider that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? There is a servant who is going to usher in forgiveness and will ultimately be a light for the Gentiles. The way he does this is through substitution. He is pierced for our transgression. He is crushed for our iniquity. Our chastisement is put upon him. And ultimately, he will go before those who will slaughter him in silence. Violence will not be with him. He will not commit any types of acts of violence. He will be peaceful like a lamb led to the slaughter. And ultimately, he will be cut off from the land of the living. And they will make his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Okay, d- does this sound familiar? Does this, does this sound like someone? 700 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah speaks of a servant, a suffering servant, who will be pierced, who will be crushed, who will be smitten, who will be marred beyond human recognition. And he does this in order to bring about forgiveness for God's people, in order that he might give them his peace. And when you start putting the pieces together, you're like, oh, I know exactly who we're talking about right now. God chose Israel. Israel is going to be a light to the world. They, like every single human being, rebelled. And they too were caught up in rebellion against God. And so God doesn't abandon his plan for his servant Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. Remember, God said, I will be a light to the Gentiles and Israel will be a light to the Gentiles. But how does God accomplish this? In Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the Messiah, we see God himself, Emmanuel, come and is born 
as a first century Jewish man, and he is the faithful Israelite who is faithful to God the Father to the very end. And he is led like a lamb to the slaughter. And he gives up his life in faithful service to his father. But God does not abandon him to the grave. On the third day, he is resurrected in power and glory, thus ushering in forgiveness of sin and the light to the Gentiles can begin. And 2,000 years removed from this event, what do we observe? That salvation, the good news of Jesus of the God of Israel has gone out to the ends of the world and people from every tribe, tongue, and nation now have come to know the living God because of the faithful suffering servant. Okay, now, question though. We just saw Isaiah describe what will happen to Jesus. He's pierced, he's crushed, he's beaten. He's cut off from the land of the living. What occurs right before all of these prophecies of Isaiah meet their fulfillment. Like what is going on right before Jesus is handed over, right before he's betrayed to go to the cross and fulfill all those prophecies? What is Jesus doing? What is, doing, what is Jesus doing right before he's betrayed? The servant is serving. John 13, during supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come down from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, again, if you grew up in, in, in Christianity, sometimes these stories, you go, oh yeah, this is where Jesus washed the disciples' feet and you move on. Like, pause. God, incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, came and put on humanity. And moments before he is handed over to be beaten, tortured, crucified, and killed, he washes the feet of his disciples. Now, you have to understand the honor and shame culture that exists in first century Israel. This doesn't happen. The one who is teacher or Lord doesn't watch the feet of those who are seen as inferior. Like that doesn't happen. And by, by what I mean by it doesn't happen is there is not a single reference outside of this in all of Jewish and Greco-Roman literature from the time that has a superior washing the, the feet of this, the inferior. The teacher, the boss, the rabbi never does it. It's not a single occurrence in Jewish literature or Greco-Roman literature. It does not happen. And there's tons of feet washing going on. That's a standard practice. But the one who is seen culturally as superior would never bow down to that level. It would not happen. There's not a single instance of it. Nevertheless, this is what the servant who is highly exalted does. Now there's more because John wants you to be aware of a couple things. First, John includes the fact that during this supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. In other words, we're clued in, and Jesus knows Judas, who is there, will hand me over to be tortured and crucified. He's there. That's going to happen. Second, 
It points out that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. Okay. Jesus knows that God the Father has put all things, all authority into his hands. Now question. Um, If you knew that all authority and all things were placed into your hands, what do you think you would do with your hands? Do you think the very next thing you would do after knowing all authority, power, and glory rest in my hands, given to me by the hand of God, well, I think I'm going to wash some feet. See what John's doing. He's letting you know. Jesus knows exactly who he is. And with all authority and power and glory, Jesus takes up the basin and the towel and washes his disciples' feet. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do not wash my feet. That's the the normal response. This This is not right. Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. That's an unthinkable thing. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. This is John's way of letting you know Jesus knows what Judas is going to do. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. So, if Jesus washes the, the feet of his disciples, how much more should we serve each other? So Jesus invites us into a, his, this paradigm of servanthood. If the son of God washes the feet of his disciples, how much more so should we be about serving each other? Now you have to stop here and, and really reflect on how much Jesus is serving his disciples right now. Because in a few moments... John will let us know that Jesus says to one of the disciples, Judas, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. Which means Judas is here. All the disciples are here. So to what degree did God himself serve his people? He washes the feet of the the disciples. The disciples are all about to abandon him and run away in fear. He washes the feet of doubting Thomas. He washes the feet of Peter who will deny Jesus three times. And maybe more unexpectedly, he washed the feet of Judas. Moments before Judas betrays him unto unspeakable horror and suffering, Christ takes up the basin and the towel and washes the feet of his enemy. And Judas leaves from that moment with his feet freshly cleaned by the living God and he leaves after eating a meal given to him by his teacher and his Lord. If Christ can serve his people that way, in that moment, before his betrayal, how much more 
ought we serve one another? How much more should we serve each other? For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. So we follow after the paradigm of the great servant, the suffering servant. And so we ought to live like that. Now, I want to briefly talk about what this actually means in practice because um, oftentimes in the church world, when we talk about being a servant or servanthood, the definition is, is narrow and restricted. And if, you, if you've been in church a long time, you're gonna know what I'm talking about. When, like when, when church people talk about being a servant or servanthood, uh, usually what's immediately communicated is like doing menial tasks that you kind of really don't wanna do. Like lowly, humble tasks. Like, you know, wash the dishes if you don't have to. You're gonna help that coworker at work move even though you don't really like him and he's probably not even gonna get you cheap pizza for lunch. Um, <clears throat> it means your na- you're going to help your neighbor paint the fence on the weekend even though you don't want to. So it's like menial task that, you know, it doesn't really cost you anything, um, but, you know, I don't really want to do it. Now, that certainly is included in the definition of being a servant. Because if Christ is washing feet, then certainly helping your neighbor paint the fence is included in being a servant. But I also want to challenge us and, and say that Being a servant isn't only just doing those types of tasks. They are certainly a part of it, to be clear. But who is the model of the perfect servant? Christ. And we see Christ serve his people in many different ways. So he is the the servant who washes his disciples' feet, but he's also the, the servant who says, no, no, let the children come. He is also the servant who flips over the money changers in the temple and drives them out. Because definitionally, a servant is the servant of God. They are the one who does the will of God. And sometimes the will of God means to drive out the money changers in the temple. Sometimes it's to wash the disciples' feet. Jesus also is the one who confronts the Pharisees. He says, you guys are like blind guides. It's like the blind leading the blind, which they would have said, that sounds familiar. That's Isaiah. So what am I getting at? I'm saying that, When we serve people, that can manifest in a thousand different ways. Yes, it sometimes means washing the dishes, painting the fence, helping someone move, but it's it's a lot broader than that. Let me give you let me give you an example. This is a bad this is a bad idea. Okay, let's say you're married and you have some kids. Okay, it's Christmas. It's Christmas time. Christmas coming up, and um, you're you're the dad, and and your mom's coming over for dinner. Now, whenever mom comes over, she, she's like super controlling. She puts down your wife. Like she's just always kind of being negative. You know what I mean? Like, uh, Susie's lasagna for Christmas again. Merry Christmas. <laughs> you know, and she's, she's controlling and she's always negative to your wife, Okay. Now, after, after Christmas, you have dinner, and there's a sink full of dishes. Now, yes, being a servant may mean going and cleaning the dishes, right? Christ can wash feet, you can wash dishes, yes. But also, being a servant in that moment might be serving your wife by talking to your mom, and let's, 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 make it, let's up the, the illustration. She was super controlling in your childhood, and the way you learn to deal with it is by never confronting. So you're, you're by default, temperamentally, non-confrontational. You don't want to confront your mom. 
the way you serve your wife, maybe, is not just doing a small task, but telling your mother, you are not allowed to be negative towards my wife anymore. My wife will be honored in this house, and I don't want my kids seeing this example of people talk down, talking down to their mother. It's no longer acceptable. So the way you serve your wife is by having a confrontation that you did not want to have. Because sometimes shepherds serve the sheep by leading them to green pastures. And sometimes they need to take the rod and the staff and defend the sheep at a high cost to themselves from wolves. So service looks differently. It can manifest in a thousand different ways. If I could get like a definition or maybe a, a sentence or two how to practically define this, I would go back to the series we just left from the book of Philippians and go to chapter two. If you recall, uh, Paul was talking about the need for church unity, but then he says this. I think this is a perfect way to look at it. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Okay. What, what does serving others look like? Well, it means I'm going to remove selfish ambition or conceit from my life, and I'm gonna clothe myself in humility, and I'm going to count others more significant than myself. I'm gonna not only look out for my own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do you see how this works? Like, I'm not gonna have vain, I'm not gonna be conceited. I'm going to clothe myself in humility and look for the interest of others. Sounds a lot like loving your neighbor as yourself. And so how do I look out for the interest of others? Sometimes it means painting the fence. Sometimes it means helping the guy move and you brought the pizza. And sometimes it might mean having a difficult conversation in your family, in your marriage. Like there's things going on here and the way I'm going to serve you all best is by saying what needs to be said. Do you see what I'm saying? It, 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 Maybe there's a situation at work that needs to be confronted. Service can manifest in a thousand ways, but the heart of it is clothing yourself in humility like our Lord did and looking out for the interest of others. Now, what's great about this is after Paul gives this, this talk about humility and caring for others, look how he grounds it. Verse five, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How did Christ serve his people? By becoming the suffering servant, who even though he was God with us, took on humanity, and went to his death, yes, even death on a cross. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He knows the flock by name, and he lays down his life, for he is the good shepherd. And this is how Christ perfectly serves his sheep. Now, uh, because Christ says the first shall be last, the last shall be first, and God will honor humility in acts of service, we see the, the paradigm continue to play out. <coughs> It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So now Christ is given the name that is above every name and people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are going to confess his name and they will bow before him. Do you remember early on what it was said? Uh, Israel was supposed to be the light to the Gentiles, but then God says, I am going to do it. And now what is this saying? God himself in the person of Christ, the faithful Israelite, is now exalted and every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess his name. Which, if you've been tracking since the beginning, should sound familiar. Do you remember where we began with Isaiah? God said, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my, foul, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Israel did not fail in their mission because the faithful Israelite came, God himself who took upon humanity, who was born among the servant, and became the servant. And he would ultimately lay down his life for the sheep. He would be the substitution. He is pierced, he is crushed, he is smitten. He gets chastisement and we get his peace. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If God can serve us in this way, how much more ought, to we, ought we serve each other? So as we prepare ourselves to enter into communion, I'd like you to think about the different spheres that you find yourself in. And what I mean by that is your family life, your work life, life in the community, your life in the church. How can you better serve your family, your coworkers, people in your community? How can you better serve this church? How can you better serve one another? Because if Christ can do that, certainly we ought to be a people of service. He is the servant and we are his servants and we want to serve him. So take what Christ has done for you and the example that he's given and ask yourself, how can I apply that to every area of my life? Take all of that with you as we enter into communion. Let's stand.